0: This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell. I've been lucky enough to work with writers for many years from Shakespeare and Company Bookshop in Paris to Sydney Writers Festival and now Tableau. And I've always found that writers have an ability to articulate what we need to hear when we need to hear it. So I hope you'll get as much inspiration from these rambling conversations as I do. Keep in mind that we're talking from our homes and not in a studio, so please bear with us if the sound isn't perfect. Today I'm speaking with author and journalist Dr Julia Baird. You might have read some of Julia's astute pieces on all different subjects in the New York Times and the Sydney Morning Herald, or seen her on the drum which she hosts. She's also a mother of two, a regular ocean swimmer, and has now written three books. They're all very different, though there's also a clear trajectory and connections between them. Her biography of Queen Victoria was critically acclaimed internationally, and I particularly love Janet Maslin's description of it as frisky, adventurous and exhilarating, which is like all of Julia's writing, really. Her new book is called Phosphorescence, and it's also taking the world by storm. It's about how you find light within your life, not just when the world goes dark, but all of the time. Julia, hello, a big congratulations on this magnificent new book. Oh, thank you, Gemma. Lovely to chat. To help us set the scene, can you tell us where you're speaking from?
1: Um, I am actually sitting at my front window and looking out kind of over the garden. I can see a little bit of the ocean. It's a really cool, crisp autumn day, like the best kind of day. I love these days so much. It is absolutely gorgeous, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And did you start the day with a swim?
1: Not today because I am on column deadline. But yeah, so today was a bit frantic. But the rest of the week I have, and I'm going to try to sneak down later this afternoon because there's just so much. It's so clear in the water at the moment. There's lots of rays, there's massive schools of fish. I saw a huge jelly blubber just a few days ago, like a human, human oh. size, like the size of a barrel. And there's also the cuttlefish are coming back into the bay. So I saw a couple of days ago a tiny, it's a couple of tiny little baby cuttlefish um and you can play with them like they kind of respond to you when you move your hands and yeah they'll move their trunks back up (laughs) and you kind of can wave to each other they're so cool so anyway Uh, and have you seen any sharks this week no i'm i'm told that they're around there there's actually supposed to be quite a few around i haven't seen a shark for a while i mean i've seen like wobbegong and port jackson sharks but um i haven't seen any others normally there's a lot of dusky whalers at this time of year and i can't work out why actually
0: yeah Julia, how are you, I mean, I, in general, I don't know how you manage with all of the different things that you're doing so beautifully. Um, I mean, I'm curious about how you kind of, in your head, if you have to kind of have a major head switch between the journalism work, between hosting the drama and also writing books, like how do you find that there's a shift or it's coming from the same place in your mind? No,
1: it's a shift. It's kind of a welcome shift in the sense that, well, especially with Victoria, when you're working on something that's absolutely massive. Um, and sometimes you're just plugging away. Like the year it took me to just get through Queen Victoria's diary, she was so prolific. I felt like I was not getting anywhere. Of course I was reading year after year after month after month after day of sometimes inscrutable writing, but to be able to then go on a television show, have several segments, sign off at the end of it, and I'd actually done something for the day that's really satisfying. It's almost like going from introvert to extrovert in the one week, and I really love that. Though I did really think when I... Finish Victoria I realised what a peaceful place that was for me to sit really quietly and be in another time another century I draw a lot of strength from that I think yeah and what you say about the
0: the sitting quietly with it and those moments of quiet that you find yeah. in your life like the swimming and the mm. writing of Victoria it sounds like as well in a way
1: yeah it's like absorption I and mean, people call it like flow I think I don't really understand flow but that sense of you lose sense of the ticking of time. I love that feeling so much and I do get that from writing.
0: And how did you move from Queen Victoria to this, this wonderful new book?
1: Well, I'm always doing, because I've been writing columns for such a long time since I started out in journalism and I've done it for several different like, newspapers and media outlets uh, now. I'm always writing columns at the same time. And I've never really written like a partisan column or a strongly political column. I've always gone around different cracks and written about the stuff of life um, and a lot of different things we think, think about. And I've been, you know, some of the themes that are in phosphorescence I have been thinking about for quite some time in terms of, I don't know, the concept of savouring or what beauty is or it's just a sense of inhabiting different <laughs> different worlds at the same time. I think in a way it was great to just sit and do phosphorescence. Firstly, it's very, very peaceful to sit and think about things of beauty and what is it that comforts you and why does it comfort you? Like why? What is it about the natural world? And how do you teach yourself to relish things because, you know, we want to be able to delight. Like what is that? Um, that was really a great way, a great way to spend time. So um, that was a bit of a refuge as well, but in a different way. But I didn't have to consult a million different books that you could only get via, you know, from a really arcane libraries around the world, which is what happened with Victoria. <laughs> I mean, I got a silverfish infestation in my last apartment what? because, well, they kept arriving in these old books, and I think they would hop out of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do, because it's Shakespeare and Company. Where I worked, there was in Paris, there was so
0: many like old Silver books fish. and old libraries that we would collect into the bookshop. And yes. the, yeah, the silverfish, it's not good, is it? Yes,
1: exactly. So I had to kind of sort that out. But that, but that, was, that was life. It was these beautiful, dusty old tomes. But anyway, I was a little bit relieved at of being off the hook with that for phosphorescence I researched was researching like life and scientific journals and meeting people and you know swimming and I went to Japan and met with a guy who's the expert in forest therapy and all that kind of thing so it was a it's a completely different kind of work
0: and is it strange for you has it been strange about how particularly relevant this book is for our current period
1: yeah it really is because it's not I mean, we all go through incredibly difficult times, sometimes unfathomably difficult, and we don't know we're going to get how we're going to get out of it. Um, sometimes they're savage and brutal. Sometimes it's just it's just a spell of darkness, and you can't even necessarily define it. And after having been through some of those myself, and having found things that really did give me a lot of comfort and give me strength, I wanted to kind of get them all down. What are the the rafts? You know, what are the planks in the raft that kept me afloat? So it was a kind of a sense of. Some of these things could, you know, be a salve for the weary. It's not prescriptive. It's not like you must do these things. It's Everyone will have their own things, although I think a lot of us do have um, a lot in common when it comes to nature, for example, and being outside and, and being immersed in things. But the sense was more in the case of emergency, break glass, you know, and then when the book came out, suddenly there was like shattering, splintering glass all over the place because yeah. we hit this really hard this really hard point, and um, and for me, it wasn't like I ever sat down and was like, I mean, I've never been commercially oriented in anything I've written, so I've never gone, well, I really think there's there's a gap in the market for my personal musings on bioluminescence, right? It was like there's a bunch of things, there's a bunch of things I just have to get down, and I Mm. did, and so um, the fact that like the people have responded so strongly to it has been like really surprising and wonderful. It's, to me it
0: feels like a little bit of a book of life wisdom but not in any self helpy way. It's so profound and authentic and I really like the way that you weave memoir and nature writing and history with literary and personal anecdotes and you do it really effortlessly. Did you always see the book as a combination of those styles or did that evolve in the process of the writing?
1: No, it was always going to be like that. It's, it was almost like this is the way that I want to write, can I get away with it? that was more like that, can, can I actually get away with that? And I remember speaking to my um, my best friend who I write about in, in the book quite a bit and saying, you know, do you understand, do you get what I'm trying to do? It's like a bit of this and then a fragment <laughs> of a recollection of that and um, then pulling in a study and she kind of immediately got it and we were talking a bit about, who do we talk about, like Drizella Majeska, used to experiment with different forms and Helen Garner and like a lot of the people that we really loved have been able to play across those different ways of writing and it's just something that's completely resonated to me it doesn't even seem to be a different way of writing to me it's like it's just the way you think you'll you'll reflect on a personal experience then you'll wonder if like anyone else has written about that <laughs> you might have a chat to them about it then you might discover some science and then you'll you know you a slab of poetry will kind of play into it too
0: yeah and the writers that you, there's such richness from, from the, the stories about writers and, and the quotes that you include. Can you talk about some of those writers who've been really inspiring for you?
1: Yeah, Rachel Carson. Um, I'm really interested in, in her at the moment and I read a lot of her work during this. I'm fascinated by the fact that she had not seen the ocean and it wasn't I don't think until she was in her 20s that she actually saw it, but her whole life that's what she wanted to do mm. um, and see. It was like a kid dreaming of being an astronaut and going to the stars. Like what is it that puts that in your blood from a young age? And how bright and prescient she was that she could talk about the, you know, she really founded in many ways the modern environmental movement and yet also wrote incredible books about wonder and how you should take children by the hand and just walk through woods and parks and fields and wherever you are and point things out to them. Um, And then when I actually discovered by chance that she had had an experience of phosphorescence, that she herself had like written a letter um, to her great friend describing one night with these jewels being thrown onto the beach and her like rapture about it. I just was, I was so, I was so excited (laughs) that she'd had that too. Um, I also read a lot of, I read some Thomas Merton who sometimes is hard going, but I am very interested in him as a thinker and as a person And, and Mary Oliver, I kept retreating to again and again and again. And, um, you know, from the way she writes about the summer's day of watching a grasshopper eat sugar from her hand. It's a beautiful poem. Isn't it? Yeah, I love it. And, you know, how she ends with it, you know, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And for her it was about slowing and that intense absorption that you and I were just talking about before was kind of watching this grasshopper, to the way she talks about dogs and she loved dogs and wrote a lot of poems about yeah. them. And <laughs> she's got this great, like, scene where she talks about being out looking at the moon and just one night with her dog and she's looking at, up at it, just marvelling at it, just how incredible and beautiful it was. And then she looks down at her dog and her dog is gazing at her in exactly the same way.
0: I'd never heard, talking about the moon, I'd never heard
1: about moon, moon bows before right? before this book yes. either. I actually mm. had not either. I stumbled on that too because a lot of it of course I became interested in how what happens in the dark and how you can grow in the dark without realizing it. so um, that's why I was interested in celllantropism and the plants that move during the night and so because you know it was all about when things become rubbish what happens
0: and Julia. To, just to give us, just to kind of immerse all of us in the book, can you read an extract for us about the natural world? That would be really wonderful. I think this is from page 17.
1: Yes, okay. <clears throat> Great thinkers, philosophers, and eccentrics have all been inspired by the unfathomable. The most beautiful thing we can experience, wrote Albert Einstein, is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead, his eyes are closed. In my own quest to become phosphorescent, in which I lost myself many times in dark holes and swamps, it was awe and wonder that I kept returning to, and the quiet healing properties of nature, the forest, the sea, and the creatures they contain. So many of us have our quiet places of escape and refuge, nearby beaches, a park bench, a magnificent tree. A small mountain of studies in the field of nature science has repeatedly confirmed that the sheer sight of green, plants, leaves, trees, views from windows, can make us happier and healthier. This evidence and these experiences have given rise to the burgeoning Japanese pioneered practice of forest bathing, Shinrin yoku whereby participants are walked slowly through tracks of trees to touch them, listen to their sounds and reconnect with nature.
0: Oh, thank you for that. Forest bathing, <laughs> it's such a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? It is. I've never actually thought of it like that, but really when you walk into those wild, wild-free, you know, ancient ancient forests and bush and here in Australia, it's really quite spectacular and it does feel like you're forest bathing, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. You're bathing your senses and kind of cleaning them in a way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Talking about the natural world. And I know we were talking about the ocean before there's a particular there's the cuttlefish has been something for you that has held a particular (laughs) particular attraction. Why do you love cuttlefish so much in particular? Oh
1: my gosh. I love them. Okay. So if you've ever seen one like in the wild, like I just couldn't believe it when I saw this thing, like it's So prehistoric and strange looking. Um, I mean, obviously people might know what they look like, but they've got this like head, which is like imagine like eight arms or is it eight? I can't remember how many they've got, several arms all come together at a point and then they suddenly can splay out again, which is what I was doing with that baby cuttlefish this week. I was like waving my hands and making its little arms go (laughs) boop and then back again. I think they're called candles. And so it kind of looks like this weird elephant head and then this little body which is um, a tiny little body but it's got like a ripple around it, like a rippling um, shawl that kind of floats like silk. And they are just so astonishing looking. Um, the way they change colours from like when they're over the sand, they'll be clear and very, you know, white or yellow and smooth, and then they'll go over the reef or over the weeds and suddenly they change in colour and texture. So they're reddy brown and they're kind of like, not hackles, but their skin kind of bumps up and changes shape. And they also don't live for very long. They only live for one or two years. They're these magnificent kind of creatures and in our bay we've seen them fighting and mating and eating each other. Like They're real inhabitants eating each that other. Yeah. Wow. Something was going wrong there obviously that day. But like you they, they they become like um it's like for something that you see every day in the wild. So mm. you inhabit you live alongside each other. So I could go down and know that I would see these creatures and they'd be doing a different thing. And so when it comes to um spring and you Know that you see those little cuttlefish bones kind of washed up on the beach. I always kind of grieve a bit, man. Mm. Um, although much like the end of Charlotte's Web, there'll be a couple of other little kind of babies shooting along quickly to kind of reassure you at the end of it. Um, yeah, so it really makes you appreciate them.
0: I've never actually seen one swimming, as I said, I don't have the goggles, I'm kind of more close
1: to the shore and I'm not actually doing the swimming. Are they further out? No, they'll be kind of like nestle, nestle into reefs or kind of alongside pools and so on. They won't go too far out.
0: And I think that also kind of connects with considering the, the brief life of these creatures. It connects to your idea of what you discussed, the idea of wabi-sabi. I don't know if that's pr- how you pronounce it. Can you talk about how you work that idea into your life?
1: So wabi-sabi being the idea of like imperfection and appreciating the beauty in decay and where, and obviously it's a Japanese concept and a Japanese person would describe that and understand it much better than I have. But to me, like part of when you're thinking about what sustains you is kind of the eye that you cast on yourself and the eye that you kind of cast on other people as well. And it's about there's many different ways in which we kind of accept our own imperfections and, I don't know, time that has passed and lives that are lived, yeah. And
0: it it's funny because it, it's not a very Australian concept, is it? Like it feels more European because I think over there, in addition to Japan, of course, there there is that appreciation of of imperfection um, mm. and intransience, whereas it doesn't feel like it's as a natural concept here in Australia. I don't know if that's how you thought about it. but um, Yeah,
1: I wonder why. I wonder why we have that. Maybe it's... Maybe it's all the kind of patched-up sculptures and the sense of like you're surrounded by that physical history and the ruin. But, you know, our history obviously is ancient but it's more embedded in the landscape than in physical things. That's true,
0: yeah, yeah. Now, Julia, just just within this book there's so many different um subjects that you go into so beautifully and one of them was you writing about your own you know really difficult times and you speak really candidly about having three cancer operations and coming close to death was that was that hard for you to write about
1: um you know what was hard to do was actually to speak it when I had to do my audible book I was surprised at how different it is to speak something than it is to write it um I didn't really I wrote one piece like at the time that I wanted to yeah that I kind of didn't want to elaborate on it for me it was important that for this book especially it wasn't going to be a memoir about other people have really written very beautiful memoirs about being ill I more wanted to write about that had lived experience of this trauma, it was very traumatic, that takes can take a long time to recover from and it can lead you to places that you just don't know you're going to be able to scramble your way out of. You just don't know. And when we talk about resilience now and when we talk about how to get better, I think people assume that, oh, resilience means next week you're better or next month you're better. But actually these things can take a long time and sometimes it is just sheer hanging in there. I mean it's kind of like Nick Cave when he writes about what he realized what you know again when he lost his son who you know fell off a cliff and it was a really awful story but how connected he became to so many other people and realizing that what we have in common with each other is kind of that level of suffering you know um that we sometimes we're not very good at talking about and that and, and his final conclusion being that the purpose of life is to try to actively reduce one another's suffering and I think that's actually what I was really trying to do with the book that's really what my intent was if by writing about how I'd waded through some spots myself could maybe help reduce someone else's or shorten someone else's you know track through a dark valley then that's that's really what I wanted to do. One thing
0: as well that we saw in that period when you're writing about that was the people that glow and the art of friendship, your friends who were by your side and provided such solace and constancy. Did you see friendship differently or did that show you different sides of friendship after that experience in the hospital?
1: Yeah, look, it's very common for people to say, you know, you go through something and then you really work out who your true friends are. Um, But I think it's more that it just gave me such an appreciation. Like when you really need your friends and just to accompany you, just to be there, just to check in with you and give you that sense that, you know, you're not going through any of this on your own. Yeah, I think it really did. I really came out of it just wanting to really thank my friends who were there. I mean, I don't know, we we do talk about friendship, we do kind of acknowledge it, but sometimes I don't think we can even recognise how profound it can be with some of your friends, like your best and your oldest friends from school, for example, that can endure all the way through your life. And relationships may, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, come and go, your friends will always be there. And it's like such a stunning and and powerful thing. So Yeah, I was just very grateful for my friends and also really grateful for the pragmatic people and the people who made me laugh. You know, people who've been through this know exactly what I'm talking about, I think.
0: And one of those people who you write about in this book is your mother and it really is a beautiful kind of description of her. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother and what she's taught you and her grace, which you you talk about?
1: Yeah, her grace is probably her defining her defining um, characteristic. She's a very, very strong person. Like She's an introvert with a, quite a wicked sense of humour, who's got no interest in pomposity or status or any of that, um, is very perceptive and smart and very kind and also resilient. She was a psychologist and she was very like, well, you just get on with it. She never really was very absorbed in herself at all very concerned or very vain. And I kind of wrote about how it's only really relatively recently that I realised how freeing, how pleasant that is to be around with someone who's so unconcerned with herself. And she really repeatedly spoke to me about grace or tried to show it, which is the sense that we live by mathematical equation. Someone does one thing for us, we'll do another thing for them. It's kind of this endless balance sheet. But the concept of grace just kind of erodes that. You do things to... For people who may not deserve it, who may not have asked it, you can you forgive someone who, in no sense necessarily, should be forgiven. Although I do also really like Nadia Bolt's Weber's um, description of forgiveness as like bolt cutters, by which you can cut assholes out of your life. <laughs> that to me is also quite right. So I think there's kind of limits to that as well, you know. Um, but. Um, yeah. So that was her way. And uh, it's interesting because when I gave this manuscript to my American publishers, they were really like, oh, the one person we would really like to hear more about is your mother. And I think that, look, at the beginning of the book, I talk about going through this really bad heartbreak and like not knowing how I was going to get through and I was completely bereft and You know, honestly, I should have pulled my socks up a bit more, but I didn't. I was just really sad. And um, calling up my counsellor and going, I honestly, like one day when I was just having such a bad day and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I actually just don't know. And he was like, well, Julia, like it's at this point, that everything in your life matters, everything that you've been given, that you've been told, every book you've ever read, you know, every hug you've ever, ever been given, every every friend, every member of your family, all of that matters now. And the sense that we have like can have like a reservoir or a pool that we can draw on I think is really interesting because we often suddenly look outwards for answers at those times instead of going, okay, what is it that I already know? And I think with my own reservoir, like so much of that is my mother and the things that she's given me. And, yeah, I tried to read her, like Sam Neill read out a little bit of the book about her the other day on social media and I was trying to play it to her over the phone because I can't see her because she's in an aged care home and she cried. It was very sweet, yeah.
0: Has she um, been able to hear the book or hear extracts of the book or if, is she reading? Did you say she's not?
1: She can't read, no. But, um, yes, yeah, some parts at a bit, yeah, we're kind of reading parts to her and um, she's heard the bit about her.
0: There's so much in there as well about women's insecurity and your mother sounds like an incredible solid force in your life. I don't know if it did, if it helped get you through those teenage years where we're all so incredibly insecure. And I think you include a quote by Elizabeth Jolly about how women often see themselves in flawed fragments, which I really liked. Yeah. How do we teach our daughters that beauty is not all important? Ugh.
1: I mean, that's my big one now. You know what? I mean, I, I'm I a bit, you know those people that have those dieting theories um I'm not a fan of diets but but those people that talk about you don't have a go on a diet you just eat really good stuff and that will crowd all the other rubbish out supposedly (laughs) um I kind of like I kind of like that idea with the parenting stuff too like I can't stop everything my daughter's getting exposed to the fact that she's on Instagram and you know her friends have just started high school and they're all like in bikinis I think oh my gosh like Mm. um not on a prudish level but just on an onslaught level it's an onslaught as soon as you turn on your phone that's the kind of stuff that you get but then I get comfort from the fact that she is surrounded by really smart interesting strong women you know I give her a lot of lectures I mean the poor thing I'm trying to wind I'm trying to wind it down now um (laughs) so I'm not so obvious with her
0: has she read the letter the letter to to her that you wrote that is in the book, which is one of my favorite parts
1: as well? So I tried to get her to read it, and she she just wasn't that interested. you know she was busy and um I don't know. I think that she to me, it's like she might have just seen it as another lecture or something maybe. So eventually I said this, and this is going to be the running an extract in this magazine this weekend that you might, you maybe your friends might see it, you might want to. So she read it and um, she was like, yeah, that's good, and, you know, and then she went, you know, Mum, but by the way, she goes, by the way, I am not going to read history. And I'm like, wow, right, like that's her rebellion. I'm like, Mum, I'm taking you down on the history front. And I went, you know what, you know those stack of books you've got about World War Two? that's history. And she went, oh, right, yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, I think she quietly liked it. But, you know, she's she's establishing who she is, which is what I am not, you know. She has to be different to me.
0: Well, it's such a gift. It's such a gift for her um, and for your family, I think, as well. Um, could you read us a little, a little bit of that letter?
1: Sure. A couple of things. Uh, keep in mind that the most important quality in a person is goodness. If you ever decide to loop your heart to another's for life, make sure that they possess a rare goodness, a decency that does not crumble under fire. Beyond the head-spinning intoxication and stomach-curdling craving, beyond the fireworks and first flames, goodness is what matters. And then later, I also say tell her don't let the world crush your astonishing spirit. And I say, know that bad times will pass. They always do. Rubbish will get tipped into your life, occasionally vats of it. And sometimes this will be your fault and you must try to learn from it. But at other times, it will be deeply unfair. And all you can do is control the way you respond to it. Speak your peace, but don't complain. Draw yourself to your full height. Keep moving. Place one foot in front of the other and know it will pass. If it won't, do what you can to change it. But walk tall, don't descend to nastiness and vitriol ever. As Michelle Obama so beautifully put it, when they go low, we go high. Find what makes you resilient and keep reading history. Actually, keep reading everything but especially history. Lives have been lived we can barely imagine. In that history you will find a seething mass of humanity that is always striving and reaching and falling and screwing up and being small and large all at once. You'll learn that basic rights can be rapidly eroded and evil flourishes when good people look the other way. You will find that humans are capable of extraordinary tenderness and extreme brutality all in the one day, that one person can contain breathtaking contradictions, sinners can have moments of greatness, and saints can have streaks of darkness. Understanding this is crucial as you will come to recognise what it is you can accept in yourself and others. You'll also see that character is partly innate and partly built. Make habits out of kindness, compassion, discipline, humility, and honesty. Work hard on them. This will give you an unseen and magical strength. Also, I tell her to buy a beautiful dress. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. That was, yes, yeah, really great. It's interesting throughout that reading as well, and elsewhere in the book, you talk about telling us our, our own life story and our narrative. And how we kind of um, define our lives. How do you stop yourself telling negative stories in your own life?
1: Well, I think just think you have to be kind of really conscious of it. Like I don't know, I, I do think I was. I think especially the case for women, but I think it's, it's obviously for all people. It's the story we tell about our triumphs or our failures, what we accept in ourselves, what we don't. We can punish ourselves so much. Um, I do think especially women always feel like they're failing in some aspect or another because I think to be given what we're supposed to be as women, like just to be human means that you're going to fail at any of those things because the idea of perfection is so impossible. So I think you just have to keep a check on yourself um, and kind of what, you know, what you allow yourself to be. And if, you know, for things like, I mean, I write about a time of activism in my life and something really, really just didn't work, Um, didn't exactly backfire, but it really just didn't work. But I really honor that time in my life because I know I really cared about something and I know I really tried. And I also do think that when you're striving towards making the world better and to making wrongs right, then no effort really is ever squandered. And um, I love the way that Rebecca Solnit puts it, that we only ever see kind of like protests at the time of mass eruption or mushrooms after rain but actually the mushrooms spring from activity and the formation of fungus below the surface that's actually been working for a very long time so I'd like to think then we need to think of more of ourselves as kind of little fungi (laughs) basically
0: yeah as we spoke about before you also show us how artists and writers give us inspiration and you talk about your friendship with Helen Garner what did you learn from her?
1: Obviously, her writing is astonishing and really unparalleled in many ways, I think. And it's interesting, I think, the way Australians respond to her work and the way women respond to her work. She captures something so kind of dry and funny and, you know, genuine and also this quiet yearning as well. Um, I really like the way Helen writes about faith and I, I first kind of met her um, we were going to the same church, which was a church in Kings Cross, that was a place that was kind of a refuge for a lot of place people that left conservative churches, um, or for people who were, you know, rough sleepers or just part of the vagabond Kings Cross community. A lot of creative people, and it had this very literary, um, thoughtful minister who kind of spoke without notes and quoted poetry and roamed up and down the pews. And Helen just sat there and and she was going through a time of grief after a breakup then, come to think of it, and she was sitting there writing notes, a few pews up from me. And I don't know, I just like that. I mean, I just like the way she will gaze and wonder. There's so much about religion now that is rigid or judgmental or it is supposed to be. It's so ironic. There's so many ways in which people try to prescribe what religion is to the very last letter. They've written in doctrines and tomes of books on, I don't know, various church regulations with tiny lettering, but actually It's founded on a mystery. It's founded on, like, things that we cannot actually properly comprehend. And there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton when he says, that talks about the difference between the poet and the mathematician. He says the poet merely tries to get his head into the clouds and the mathematician tries to get the clouds into his head. Um, And it's his head that splits. And for me, that is what people like Helen have always done, tried to get their head into the clouds and look around and, and wonder. And I really like how the way she talked about in one of her books, she writes an essay about her friendship with Tim Winton and how she was sharing a, I think in the 80s she was sharing a house with a guy who was a born-again Christian who was waiting for Tim Winton to come so he could just give him a good doctrinal talking to probably. um and um Helen couldn't bear it and she left the house and she was like oh she went for a walk and she came back in and Tim was sitting there and the flatmate had gone off to do something and the bible was just sitting there on the table and she was like to Tim what happened and he said well I just eventually said to him mate why don't you just give the book a rest for a moment and let your life be your witness and that is really something that I relate to I think um yeah, I think much of the public posturing of the church has got things very wrong in some very fundamental areas and I think um, the people I most relate to are kind of bumbling along um, trying to work out how to love better or be better, yeah.
0: And, Julia, what are you working on now? Are you focusing on the book, on the publicity for this book or are you in the middle of a new project or what are you working on?
1: Mm, well, I mean, I've yeah, obviously I've got the kind of the show and... Um, Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) To then columns and things, yeah. So but um, look, I am thinking about other things, but I'm just kind of pulling together thoughts now. Um, There's kind of of two books I'm thinking about. I mean one of them is a biography, but I'm not sure whether it's a bit too hard to, I mean I'll talk about that later, but a bit too hard to commit to something when I need to travel to archives and things at the moment um so that's a, a good point yeah so um there's bits and pieces that and some of will which will actually spring out of phosphorescence there was so much i couldn't contain in that book um so yeah i'm still pottering that's what i'm doing pottering
0: Uh well thank you so much for all of your time today julia really appreciate it and i thought it would be really lovely to hear another reading to finish with
1: I wrote this letter to my son and, and part of it was actually really realising what my son has taught me because he's like the best savourer of life. Like he's always had a low bar for what makes him happy. You know, when he was a baby, he just laughed himself silly over peekaboo every single time. <laughs> every time. You know, it was just like you just felt like you were winning. And now he's like that. He just doesn't take much. And I, I kind of admire it so much. Um And he's good at wondering as well. Um, How old is he, Julia, now? He's just turned 11. So I said, what I really want my son to know is that life, with all its striving and seriousness, its cerebral quests and spiritual yearning, is contained in crisp red apples and white marble moons, furry caterpillars and leopard-spotted slugs, the slobbering of excitable dogs, laughter, the crashing of waves, the sighting of a seal beneath a cliff or of cuttlefish on a reef, the scent of jasmine after a morning swim, a steaming bowl of fresh pasta, the smell of a just-baked cake, that all these jostling, bobbing moments sustain us, that they are the string that threads our days. But if I'm completely honest, this is what he's already teaching me.
0: Oh, thanks so much
1: for that. Oh, it's such a great pleasure to chat to you, Gemma.